Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Samir and I are the best programmers they got at that place. And you, you haven't been showing up and you got to keep your job. Actually, I'm being promoted. What? I know, Michael. It's completely unfair. 
five years now, you've worked your ass off at Inatech, hoping for a promotion or some kind of profit sharing or something. Five years of your mid-twenties now, gone. And you're gonna go in tomorrow, they're gonna throw you out on the street. You know why? So that Bill Lumberg's stock will go up a quarter of a point. Robbie came up where I used to get my dough. Writing all respects above me, employment code. Your day so much, the story that you want to know. 100, 100, 101 part time jobs. Hello, you're listening to 101 Part Time Jobs. It's where I interview bands and musicians about the side jobs they've had over the years. The, the small ones, the big ones, the fun ones, the awful ones. And on today's episode, we got Kate from Jobber, the excellent New York band. Their new EP, Hell in a Cell, is out now. I highly recommend you go search it out. It's a pro wrestling themed, groovy, punk rock, some mellower, more emotional parts. It's great. Pro wrestling and punk rock. You can't really go wrong, can you? Hell in a Cell. It's a great record. Thanks to 2000 Trees, who continually support this podcast. They've just made a massive announcement for their festival next July in Cheltenham, just a few hours away from London, where Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes are headlining the Saturday. 100 Reasons, who've just put out a new song today. Rival Schools are headlining the second stage. Pitch Shifter, Chubby and the Gang, The Chisel, Press Club, Crows, Joyce Manor, so many great bands. If you've heard of 2000 Trees, but you haven't gone yet, I really recommend checking it out. It's an independent festival, independent of all major sponsorships or corporate fizzy drinks, all that of the kind. Only joking, I love fizzy drinks. And it's one of the best things you could do with your summer if you're a fan of loud music and softer music some parts. Four-day tickets are on sale now. They're the cheapest that they'll ever be. They're probably going to sell out those four-day tickets. And that includes the Wednesday Forest, actually in a forest, forest stage lineup where Bob Villain and Holding Absence are playing. If you want to go, if you want to get money off, 101POD is the voucher code to use at checkout. That's going to get you 20 quid straight off your ticket from 2000treesfestival.co.uk. Cheers for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. Here's Kate Meisner of Jobber. Cheers! And I, I guess that's why I started this interviews series or podcast is that when, when, you know, playing in bands over the years, like lots of people like yourself, becoming like an adult where you start looking after yourself and you can no longer stay at friends or parents or family houses you know, you kind of have to develop your own survival skills. And so that's really, you know, what, what I'm trying to do with this is like get stories from people about, about, you know, how they've been able to do it. Cause it is, it is nuts. Practice is expensive. Equipment is expensive. Touring can be really expensive. I'm going to be super candid in this interview. <laughs> so, right. so um, get ready. Cause I think this is an important topic that needs to be covered. Like sort of the barriers between people who, you know, aren't incredibly wealthy and and playing music in a city like New York or like London or San Francisco. So I have played music almost my entire life at this point. My entire, like, 
I don't know, life post coming of age in some way. I've been writing songs since high school. I played in multiple bands in college and I've played in probably like 15 plus bands since I moved to New York City. Um, it's pretty much the only consist- thing I've consistently liked to do in my entire life. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just what I connected with and that connection really never ended. Um, but I knew just the reality of the situation is that once I graduated college, I would have to support myself. If I wanted to move to a city, it would have to be on my own and that I would have to get some sort of job that could allow me to pay my exorbitant student loans and also like hopefully cradle and support my my music hobby. And it really wasn't that simple. Um, when I moved to New York, I was really barely scraping by. I took a job that was like $13 an hour, which was below what the current minimum wage in New York is, which is $15 an hour. Yeah, that's not a lot. I mean, even $15 an hour, that's not a lot either. Yeah, not at all. And what's interesting is that it was like an office job. Like I took the first office job that I could coming out of college because I thought that I had to because I had gotten a college degree and I felt like pressure. So I took an office job that paid $13 an hour fool's game I could have just been a server and and made a lot more um and starting off I was trying to find a music community and and socialize and and go to shows um even that financial barrier of like not being able to afford to go to shows or having trouble figuring out how to afford a practice space um that was kind of the first inherent barrier but I never really considered making music as a living like an option for me. I always thought like and considered it from a very young age. I was like, this is just going to be a hobby because I don't really have like the safety net to pursue this in any serious way. So from then on out, it was kind of until maybe 2015, I was just jumping between like weird office temp jobs and <laughs> and full-time jobs several of which I got fired from yeah <laughs> and for going on tour and to trying to take time off yeah often time for like leaving early to go to shows just generally or staying out late and generally being like unreliable in the morning because I didn't care um but I was like all right I'll just get another one of these like temp jobs where I can just continue bouncing around and kind of living almost like a nomadic job lifestyle um, in the city. Um, And it became really unsustainable. Like I was trying to balance work, even a job I didn't care about where I only did work when I was there. I didn't really have to think about it outside of work. It was like mostly receptionists or administrative jobs. I still was having trouble balancing that with playing in local bands. At this point, I wasn't even touring yet. Um, And I remember just feeling like pulled in different directions between like the money and having to be at work at sometimes eight o'clock in the morning after playing a gig and being out till 2 a.m. It really started wearing my body down. (laughs) Yeah. And like you say, even those jobs that aren't, you know, you're not emotionally invested in, you know, it's like your body telling you no. Exactly. It's like too much. Like your brain is switched on for too many hours in the day and (laughs) by 6 p.m you're at band practice and you're you feel like toasted you know you can't even really be in it so finding that balance was especially difficult and I 
by 25, honestly, I had just written off like ever doing music in a capacity beyond playing in a local band. So you were quitting bands around that time and, and you'd kind of accepted and identified like, look, I can't fucking do this. Yeah, I was in three bands and like had, you know, a full time job. And I just had to be really candid with my bandmates. And I was like, I am falling apart, mm. like financially <laughs> in terms of my mental health. Yeah. Um I will say like, I was definitely struggling with mental health a lot around this time as well. So I was not like the most responsible or best version of myself to be equipped to handle all of these commitments at all. Yeah. Um, so that kind of compounded with it. Um, and I think the real turning point for me was when I kind of just reached a dead end. Like I couldn't find any jobs to support myself um, that I like to do. And with the impending doom of suddenly um, being booted off your parents' health insurance, which happens at age 26 in America, right. I felt I really needed to get it together. And I also felt, you know, intellectually curious and maybe I wanted to explore a career, <laughs> which led me to start applying to grad school, which is kind of the moment things changed for me. So that is a time where you realize you love playing in bands, you know you can do it, it's just not sustainable. And did you sort of turn a corner and think, look, there must be something I can do, something that's gonna stimulate my brain and my heart, and you actually get paid for, something that grad school could provide? Yes, and I really started searching for it between 2014 and 2015. Um, I think I met a few really important people in my life who sort of exposed me to you know, things that they were interested in that I somehow, I maybe absorb, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Still a little early, drinking my coffee my, out of my Aerosmith mode. <laughs> oh, that is fun. That is great. <laughs> yes. Steven Tyler. I got my Kinks pint glass. Oh, amazing. Muswell Hillbillies. That's great. <laughs> so you met a couple of people that, that, that hipped you to it, that you were like, oh, you know, because do you know what? The interesting thing about a lot of that higher education world is that unless you know about it you don't you know what I mean you kind of need to read about it or you need someone to fucking tell you that it exists I know and there's so many like very niche careers where I feel like if you don't meet someone who tells you about it you're not gonna know about it or you don't have some resource connecting you with the tools you need to learn about it. Joining the dots, right? It's really connecting the dots. So I had met this person through like an online chat room. It was kind of like an internet art chat room where people would make animated GIFs and have commu <laughs> communication. Cool. Yeah, it was a very like um, early 2010s like internet art, um, which kind of died out and doesn't exist in the form it did then. But I met someone through that who um, had gone to library school and was a UX designer at an agency. And I also met someone at that time um, who worked in city government. And I was trying to navigate like going off of my parents' health insurance and realizing how horrible the UX of getting public like Medicare health insurance is. And the confluence of these moments in my life where I was discovering what UX design was and also like trying to navigate health insurance and, and getting it, this light bulb went on like, hey, like I really do like designing websites. That was something I had already taught myself to do. I, I really like 
helping people find information um, and, and just kind of being a supportive role in that. Like I've always been super helpful in helping my friends find jobs or meet other people, sort of like the connective tissue there. You're a good friend. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's just something that really makes me happy. Um, and the dots kind of connected. And I was like, wow, I would really love to make it easier for people to use like government websites to seek public benefits and get health insurance. Maybe I will go to school for UX design and see how that goes and try to go into a field where I'm working on like government websites. That's ace. I and mean, that's an idea. That's a seed of an idea that's close to your heart and 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 you can see yourself doing it and and ux is user experience is it it is yeah i should should give some context on that yeah it's user experience design so it's basically um making websites usable and, and seamless and easy to use like when you open up uber and you just intuitively know how to hail a cab um right yeah and i was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if people could seek public benefits this way and, and get health insurance this easily? Because um, there's a big trickle down effect on there. Our local council has quite, in Lewisham, has quite a good UX design on their website. And you realize that not everyone grew up using MySpace. Not everyone had a computer that they could use. So when they're using a computer for, you know, maybe the first time or, you know, the 10th time, they don't know intuitively necessarily how to use it so that's that's a really important factor in society right yeah and now that everything is transferring online like they're the help centers that people used to go to to get say food stamps in new york a lot of those brick and mortar locations have closed and so now people have to use an app or a website to apply and people who aren't as familiar with computers or just aren't there are a lot of people in new york who who cannot like read or write um how are they to apply for the benefits they need to survive without mm. some sort of support? So it's taking their liberty away if they can't. Absolutely. And like they're just access to like a safety net. So I was um, reading a lot about this. Actually, the UK is specifically very, very um, advanced in terms of government UX design um, and helping people access public benefits. I don't know if that's changed in recent years, but when I was in school, it was. But um, I started applying to UX programs and I chose a library school because I was like, well, who is better to help connect people with the information they need to get by in the world than librarians? And there is a UX program that sort of combine the pedagogy of librarianship with with UX design and wow yeah <laughs> did you know at the time that was the right decision or, or were you a bit tentative about it you were like I hope this works I was super tentative about it I remember um trying to make a case for myself going to grad school to my family especially going to library school and like looking at like salaries of librarians and UX designers and being like I swear this is like a good decision now can you please just help me buy my books <laughs> but I was hoping it would work and I knew there must be a niche for this kind of work because I was seeing you know well-designed government services pop up um, and reading about them I, I didn't know how I was going to tap into this niche but I figured if there wasn't a niche I was going to try to make it which was very ambitious of me at the time especially as a person who wasn't really responsible and didn't really have like the faculties to do much at the time. A good idea is a good idea, no matter who you yeah. are, right? I was just hoping I would um, find find my way and sort of just went all in. And I was playing in bands around the time I started grad school, but 
I had also this inclination and it's like intuition that moving forward as I get older and like my physical needs change, the only way to maintain doing music for me personally and get like the mental health care I need and the, the social services, um, the only way to do that would be to find a job that financially supported my hobby. So I went like all in on grad school. I was like, went from being maybe not the greatest student to being like super student. And that also involves some sacrifices. Um, I ended up actually ending the band that I wrote songs for. It was just too much to split my brain between like writing songs and doing the admin of a band, which as you may know, <laughs> and I'm sure other musicians have expressed this, it's a lot of time writing music and then a lot of time just doing stuff like posting on social media and trying to get shows and practicing, um, organizing recording. So I couldn't really handle that. So there were a few years there where I just, maybe about a year where I didn't play music at all. And I just focused full time on grad school. Was that a difficult decision? Was that, you know, quite hard to just pull yourself away from it? Something that that you, you've done so much of your life, you put so much like energy and thought into, it must have been difficult to, to separate yourself from it, even for a short period of time or, or a few years. It was an unbelievable test of willpower, I think, because it felt like a part of me was missing. <laughs> Yet sad. I knew that in order to continue doing it, I would need to really just focus on something different for a while and get myself in a good position to, you know, pay off student loan debts and other debts um, yeah. in order to maintain this hobby or it was always going to continue being a struggle and I was never really going to get to do music the way I wanted to. Um, I definitely wavered in my second year of grad school. I got asked to play um, guitar in a band called Potty Mouth and do some tours with them. But luckily, all of the tours lined up with my grad school break. So I was somehow able to swing it. <laughs> Ace. And, and so launching yourself into grad school, you, you, you put the hours in, did you? You did all the extra reading. You were basically being smart about it. Yeah, I took on all the internships. I had like a job in the office and then I was working at, you know, the New York City mayor's office doing UX design and government, just like I had sought out to do. And um, really just net going to networking events, which felt very strange and unnatural for me. Um, but I definitely had a lot of imposter syndrome just from the years prior to that, where I was bouncing around between jobs. And I kind of honestly just felt like, I don't know, in, in our society, um, feeling like a success is so tied in with having a career and like how much money you make. And I didn't really have the political compass to, um, rationalize my trajectory and understand that it's like completely normal and that my self-worth shouldn't be attached to what job I have that I was still struggling with like feelings of like failure for not getting started on a career earlier um so I my way of compensating for that was just like going so hard with grad school and like having all these internships and jobs and writing like a really ambitious grad school thesis and and it ended up working in my favor um but definitely having to limit my involvement in music and playing music during that time, it felt like a piece of me was missing, as I said earlier. I think it, grad school was a huge test in like accountability. As I mentioned earlier, I had just been bouncing around between 
jobs and suddenly I was like accountable to like deadlines and professors and like I had responsibilities at my internships that involved like helping real people um and I think maintaining a sense of focus and really prioritizing my mental health in a way where I can um focus on the things I'm doing and actually like care about them um that was a huge turning point for me and it was a turning point also in the sense of like how I approached writing music I treated it like something that was always going to be um you know like a take it or leave it kind of kind of thing um because I couldn't fully invest my life in, into it but I kind of developed this sense in grad school like well I want to invest my time in the right places and really do the best I can do at anything I choose to do and and commit to those things um and that was when I really I think developed like a work ethic where like I was like I want to be a better musician I like want to grow and I also want to grow my career you know playing punk rock and alternative music in general you know there there is a big part of it that you know that there's there is sometimes some weight put on or some emphasis put on not caring too much and so having having that thought of you know really caring about it and actually being quite organized and trying to write the best songs you could trying to write the best lyrics you can did you get back into that after finishing grad school so I was sort of in the mindset of all right I want to keep music in my life and I now have like the means to be able to like afford a practice space and and do that so um yeah I'll play in other people's bands to keep my chops off but uh I did start writing my own music this time I felt like something about releasing myself from a bit of precarity like you know not not all of it but feeling a little more comfortable freed up some space in my brain um to actually be creative and not just feel this pressing anxiety all of the time i've never been able to not care um like even as a young teen playing punk music i still care deeply because i love this thing and why would i not put effort into it if i if i love it like the things you love require work and i think it's really cool that people can take like a slacker approach to writing music and i oftentimes gravitate to that kind of music maybe because it's like the antithesis of how i approach it and i'm like oh wow i i really admire this um this approach but i've never been able to do that like i've even though i've like completely um rebooted my relationship to work and career and what role i want that to play in my life more so in recent years during the pandemic um i still have a lot of trouble like keeping my distance and not caring too much. <laughs> hey, care, caring's cool. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What have you do one part-time jobs? What hundred one part-time jobs? What hundred one part-time jobs? What hundred one part-time jobs? You know, how long ago did you finish grad school then? And and did you find a, a you know a job a, a comfortable job? soon afterwards and 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 is, is that where you've been since then yes um i did find a job in my field right out of grad school um but again it was still like 
the job economy in the city is changing and there were a lot of contractor roles doing what I wanted to do, which was user experience design for, for city government. So my first job was at the Department of Education and it was a six month contract and then they kept extending the contract and then they didn't know if they could extend it. So pretty much my livelihood was always in a constant state of, oh, um, am I going to get paid next week or am I not going to get paid next week or am I not? I feel that pain. I've been a contractor for the last few years. Oh yeah. It's really like it's a real pain. And it's like, okay, well maybe this is a time to jump and, and get something more full time. But at the same time, like if you really enjoy your contracting job, I was just holding out so much hope. Um, and you were enjoying it. I really was. I think maybe I had an unhealthy relationship with it because I enjoyed it so much, but I threw myself in and I just felt this level of like focus and determination for it that I don't know that I felt towards a job since. Um, But the city just didn't have the funding or the means to make me a full-time employee. And I really needed something stable. Um, I'm just a person who needs some solid ground to stand on in order to feel solid myself. So um, this opportunity came out of nowhere on LinkedIn at a really big tech company. And I almost considered it like when I went to interview, it was almost like a joke, like I get to go inside the belly of the beast and see what it's like. Um, Behind enemy lines. Exactly. I've always been somewhat critical towards like big tech companies and the practices there, the labor practices, what they're doing to the world. So it's kind of like, ah, yeah, I'm going into the belly of the beast here and I'm just going to see what it's like. I remember taking pictures of the inside of the bathroom stall, like the newsletters and just being like, LOL, this is so ridiculous. Like who wants to learn how to code? when they're on the toilet like (laughs) um and it almost felt like I I was just there for funsies or something at this interview and I never expected to get the job I I didn't see myself as a person who could get a job at a place that was competitive (laughs) at that juncture in my life I was like this is like the most unpunk job of all time um and I I just felt very like I don't know if I'm going to uh do well here But then I got the job. I got the offer and I looked at the offer and I was like, okay, this is life changing. Maybe I should do it. It was a number that was life changing. It was a number that was life changing. And just hearing more about it, like the flexibility in terms of like when you can get to work and um, there's all like a weird safety net that a job like that provides you, which is unfair. Like, our government should provide that for people, you know, Mm, mm, Um, but mm. the job provided it for me, even though it was still a contract job. Um, So it, it was painful to take this job. I even got into like a fight with my then partner about it. Not to get too personal, but I was like, it was like, Oh, am I going against my, like, you know, my, my value, your moral compass. But then I like, you know, looked at, the amount of debt I had and just like the reality of the situation. And um, yeah, and I jumped and I was there for uh, about three and a half years. Money gives you freedom, doesn't it? Unfortunately, kind of, yeah, it does. Because suddenly it got so much easier to like work on my own music, to be in bands. I was able to go on tour and take a week off as a contractor and not like feel pressing anxiety about how I was going to pay my rent when I got home. Um, So it's very 
unfortunate that like money unlocked so much possibility for me in the music sense, but it also um, gave me the awareness to think like, okay, like if musicians like at large had some sort of safety net and financial support from like the government and from various um, public subsidies, like imagine what could happen. Yeah, our government and especially in England, and, and I presume similar for the States, music is such a held, you know, a highly held export. You know, if you look at the culture sector, one of the first three things they're going to talk about is music, right? They're going to talk about sport, music and arts. Well, music is in the art. And music is such a big thing in the arts, yet there's no help. You hear about bands getting in Canada, getting loans and, and grants and in Australia as well. It's completely insane that you, you made your own path and you went to the private sector in order to have that freedom. You know, it should be the public sector that... Yeah. yeah has it has it made you angry has it has it given you you know kind of a a political stance on it you know everything's political yeah I mean it got me thinking so deeply about like wow there are people who juggle so many jobs and part-time jobs and still make this incredible music which I personally like I wasn't able to maintain the focus to do that imagine if the same people had the resources and safety net they needed to survive and be free of some sort of anxiety and felt feel supported um, by their society. Um, imagine the art that would come out of that. Um, and already, like you know, the art that's coming out today and the music, it's it it's what gives life meaning. It's a cultural export, but it's also like what inspires us and drives us to go on. And I can't even imagine like the potential in a society where musicians are, are valued and um, treated as like essential to like not only the economy, but like life. <laughs> you know, I've interviewed quite a lot of people for this and most people are still tentatively, you know, kind of walking on eggshells with their work are still kind of in limbo. You know, even though they're, they might be in their mid, mid to late thirties or older, there is that element that there's a lot of pressure and there's, and it's scary. Um, the way you've done it is you've been able to create a foundation for yourself. I admire so much people who commit to music and they're like, I don't care. I love this thing and this is what I want to do so much. And it's my passion that I'm willing to walk on eggshells um, because this is what I want to do in my craft and like it should be valued. And I think it was like a different time. Like I graduated during the recession and a lot of my decision making was driven by fear and I really wish that that wasn't the case and I could have, you know, devoted more time and more of my life to music right off the bat. And instead of shepherding people down like a similar path to what I went down, I'm more interested in like changing things so that decision making doesn't have to be driven by fear in the same way. Jobba Hell in a Cell is such a great EP. As a, as a sort of newish band, do you feel like that's given you a kind of, um, you know, a kind of an energy, everything you've done up until now, like, you know, an energy to move forward and, and kind of a reason to do it? Yes, it's really brought so much enrichment to my life to be able to actually focus on making music that I'm proud of and have like the time and, and mental space to to devote myself into it. Um, I if I don't care about something and I don't believe in it, I'm just not going to do it. That's why I got fired from so many jobs when I was starting out in New York. Um, and I'm not going to want to share it with the world. So 
having that space to actually work on songs I really care about that not only reflected like my musical taste, but also lyrically were very um, expressed a lot of like the anger and resentment I feel about what we were just talking about, like um, the constraints of, of labor and having to balance labor and art and um, art always takes the hit in that situation. Um, that became like the basis of, of this EP, really. Um, and a lot of the lyrical themes, even the wrestling ones, touch on on labor issues. So this is something I think about like day in and day out. But um, the experience definitely gave me the energy, especially feeling like I was making music that was really true to myself for the first time ever. Are you doing UX at the moment? What What kind of projects are you working on? Yeah, so I no longer work for the company that I left city government for, I worked there for, you know, three and a half years and um, became, I, I just felt a consistent level of like complete rage, <laughs> I would say. Um, even if the work I was doing was like fairly like benign and in some cases even like helpful, especially for people during COVID, um, some of the work I was doing was related to that. Um, just watching how the company operated, how it consistently took things away from employees, mistreatment of contractors, contracts with government agencies like ICE without any remorse, just no system of checks and balances because it's a private company and private companies can do what they want unless there is a union to keep them in check. Mm. Watching like union efforts get people fired and escorted out of the building, I just felt so much anger. It was just like coursing through my veins all the time. That, that happened. You saw that happen. Yeah. Um, a few of my co-organizers were like escorted out of the building one day. And I think that's like when I was just like, I felt like numb. <laughs> like yeah. I was just like yeah. so angry. Like I just like felt like I can't do this anymore. Um, yeah. But the pandemic hit and then like there were all these conversations like you should be grateful for your job that you haven't been laid off during the pandemic. So I stuck around for a little while longer. But eventually I was like, I'm going to do something for myself. And I made the jump to a place where like I really like what I'm doing and the people I work with. And I don't feel like it's having like any sort of effect on me other than like, oh, this is a job and nice people. And I kind of like what I, what it is I'm doing. <laughs> Great. But yes, Great. I'm still doing UX full time. The health side of UX and, and public health access on, on the internet UX was, was such a, a big um, impetus for you. Have you had different ideas since and, you know, continual ideas of, of how to help, how, how, to, how to make that experience better? For, for people trying to find different services. Yeah, I mean, it's something I care about very deeply. And that's like, what I see is like the next step for me, however far out that might be is like eventually going back and working for the city and city government, which is ultimately what I care about. But for the time being, like I had this reckoning during COVID, I think a lot of people did, which kind of prompted the, you know, the great resignation and, and all of these unionization efforts and, and discussion about labor in a way that I hadn't ever really seen in my life. Um, I sort of rethought my relationship with work. And now my job to me is much less of like a passion where I care about it and more so a means to existence that is benign and enjoyable. Um, but I've learned how to really detach myself from work in a healthy way. 
um, and not let it affect me in, in any way beyond the, the positive. Um, of course, like there's going to be annoyances that come up at any job, but thankfully I found work at a place that I was kind of like looking at out of the corner of my eye since I was in grad school is like, hey, if I had to work at any like private company, I would want to work at this one. And I'm there. And it really, I think, is a good place for me at the moment. But will it always be? I don't really know. I, I really see myself going back and working for the public sector eventually. Having a benign, enjoyable job that you that, that doesn't give you the panic every day, that is a real cultural shift from our parents' generation. Yes. And, you know, that is a, that's, that's quite an empowering thing for everyone, I think. It's, it is. And even like millennial, like being in high school and college and being like, you need to find a job that you're passionate about and love and feeling this pressure from, you know, the moment you graduate high school to find what it is that you love and love your job. It's just such a farce to me. Um, because even at a time where I was like, wow, I really like working at the Department of Education, it's like you can't get too attached to your job because that funding can go away in an instant. I think it's the healthiest existence is one where a job is a job, it's enjoyable, it's something that, you know, you like to do, but I don't, there's no reason to love your job. <laughs> mm -hmm. You use the money that you get paid to do things with your friends and your family and do things that make you happy. Yeah, because that's ultimately what matters is like, to me, it's like con human connection with other people and um, making art and my family and my relationship um, that I want to pour my time into and make the mental space for not thinking about my job and feeling like upset about it. <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kate, thanks so much. I feel quite inspired. I just quit my job. Oh, good. <laughs> I, was a, I was a contractor and my partner and I tried to buy a place. And in order to do that, I needed to become full time. Had loads of meetings with my boss. He didn't make me full time. <sighs> and, and that kind of had a sort of domino effect of really reaching the point where I thought, I don't want to be here in 20 years. So I don't, you know, I don't, and I'm not, and I'm so bored. You know, I'm so bored. I'm sort of going through the motions of last week. My first week off was fun. Loads of time to read and watch TV. This week, I'm freaking out a bit. <laughs> and December's kind of a, high, a hard time to find work. It is. But with the new, fis the new fiscal year, as they call it. I mean, I don't know. Finding a place that values you enough to like give you full-time solid work I think it's really amazing that you were like forget this like I want to be valued and want something more that's inspiring to me <laughs> we should all feel that way really yeah. you know we shouldn't we should work against that that feeling that we have to be validated by something else yeah but hey thank you so much just to end with talk about getting fired you know I got fired from a few jobs but like a lot of jobs that I didn't get fired at I'd, I'd make loads of mistakes I'd make loads of gaffes <laughs> working at working in service jobs I'd always smash it you know I was always kind of little and often mistakes <laughs> do you have any good stories good anecdotes that come to mind yeah this is a this is one it, it is equal parts like really like sad and upsetting but also really funny <laughs> great that ticks all the boxes I got hired as an office manager at a tech startup in like 2013 and I just treated that job with like a level of seriousness. I was like constantly 
you know, joking around, like putting labels on everything in the office, um, playing pranks on the people who worked there, like just G-chatting people all day. Um, And as a result, like I didn't really pay much attention to the work. um, And I made one very grave error, which was... (laughs) The COO of the company, who I was like an assistant to, um, forgot their shoes in Belgium on a trip and wanted me to figure out how to get those shoes shipped from like Belgium to the UK. This happened multiple (laughs) times. And I just like straight up forgot. And when they got to the UK, they were like, where are my shoes? (laughs) But I also like booked the wrong dates on one of her flights. And really what ultimately like got me on the shit list of this, the CEO of the company is that I refused to stock the men's bathroom with toilet paper during the workday. I was like, this is inappropriate. Like these baby men can go stock their own toilets. And he called me out in a company all hands and was like, why is there never toilet paper in the men's bathroom? Do it yourself. I know. And I was like, well, you know what it is. Um, And shortly thereafter, I got like canned big time from that company, (laughs) but not before I had like, (laughs) like we started like dating one of the software engineers there. And I just, I left like a a (laughs) destruction in my path. Um, And these people were jerks. Like they were straight up, like exactly like what you would see on the show Silicon Valley. It was almost like straight out of central casting. And I did not feel bad about it at all. So that's my story. (laughs) That's excellent. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. It's been really fun. Cheers. Yeah, have a good one. Take care. So there was Kate from Jobber. Their new EP, Hell in a Cell, is out now. Go and search it. It's a great listen. See you next week with a new episode. Here's Cox Barra. I've been working all day, got me mate on the side Running around like a blue ass fly I've been working, yeah I've been working all day, got me mate Every blink minute I've been on the go This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.